Changes in the ocean caused by a changing climate, from melting glaciers and flood runoff to oceans absorbing more heat as greenhouse gases trap more energy from the sun, resulting in higher sea surface temperature and rising sea level, are at once daunting, but also more complex than scientists initially considered. Where warming seas once took precedence in research efforts to measure changes, ocean acidification has become a prime concern, and not just for scientists. On a recent cruise out toward the Gulf Stream, scientists aboard the research vessel Savannah, led by UGA oceanographer Patricia Yeager, collected samples along a horizontal route out into the open ocean. The cruise was organized to introduce undergraduate students in Yeager's upper-level oceanography course to oceanographic research. Doctoral candidate Shanshan Zhang and other graduate students from Jaeger's lab came along to share what they are doing and how. The expedition was a teaching trip as much as a research mission. So we're measuring CO2, which is called inorganic carbon, um, and we'll measure for total CO2 or total inorganic carbon and alkalinity. Alkalinity is the ability of the ocean to absorb acid. Um, so we'll measure both of those properties on this bottle that we just collected. And then she's also going to collect samples you'll see in a few minutes for organic carbon, which is the fixed carbon that the phytoplankton are making, either living or dead. She doesn't distinguish whether it's living or dead, but it tells us how much organic material there is in the water that's been produced by the phytoplankton. So it includes... Jaeger, a professor of marine sciences, has conducted extensive research aboard vessels around the globe studying marine microbial ecology and biogeochemistry. Her recent projects include investigating the effects of melting ice sheets on Arctic and Antarctic coastal productivity and carbon sequestration by microbial communities in the Amazon River Plume. So I used to work in the Arctic, exclusively in the Arctic, and I only wanted to work in the Arctic. And then Arctic funding got kind of hard to get, and so I kind of had to diversify. And I would say that working in another system, that's when I went into the Amazon, really helped me understand the original system better, right? The more you know about different ways the system works, I mean, the same rules apply, but they're organized differently. And so learning about another piece of the ocean that's operating under the same rules, but behaving very differently is, is very insightful. And the same with the Antarctic, so traveling to all these places and then being able to compare them to each other is very interesting. So, of course, coming into a... 60 miles off the Georgia coast, there's a light chop on the calm blue sea. The morning greet students and crew on deck, readying instruments to go over the side and winch down to 150 feet to the ocean bottom. sensors and bottles over the side and are sending it down to the bottom and we are now watching on the screen what, what's coming up from the sensors. So the nice thing about modern oceanography is that the electronic cable sends the data back while it's down there. So we used to just send it over the side, bring it back up to the ship and look at the data that the system was collecting. Now we can actually talk to it as it goes down because it's on an electronic conducting cable instead of just a wire cable. 
The South Atlantic Bight extends roughly from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, to West Palm Beach, Florida. Though the South Atlantic is technically below the equator, a bight is a long gradual bend or recess in the coastline that forms a large open bay, which loosely describes the coastal ocean between North Carolina and Florida. In terms of the U.S. East Coast, the region is known as the South Atlantic Bight, or more locally, the Georgia Bight. An experienced sailor who has served as chief scientist on expeditions to the polar regions, Jaeger is a widely published scholar who only began working along the Georgia coast in recent years. On this cruise with UGA undergraduates and graduate students, Jaeger is constantly teaching. The interesting thing about the profiles is that they, they reflect sort of the dynamics, right? So if we had had a really windy night and we were in really choppy seas, what would you expect? As she works with the students using sophisticated equipment in an unstable, potentially hazardous environment. Rivers transport large amounts of terrestrial material to estuaries every year. The organic matter present in estuaries is a compound mixture of local and non-local point sources, which include primary production by intrinsic aquatic plants, contribution from tidal transportation, land use changes, agricultural runoff, and from municipal and industrial discharges. What happens to terrestrial organic matter delivered to oceans by rivers and the factors controlling its distribution is key to understanding the importance of estuarine systems and global biogeochemical cycles and assessing the responses of aquatic ecosystems to global change. Chinese rivers play a major role in global transport of organic matter into the ocean. As the largest river in China and the fourth largest in the world, the Yangtze River carries a huge amount of sediment to the East China Sea. The Yangtze River estuary is one of the most active land-ocean interaction regions in the world and is an excellent case for studying the effects of terrestrial inputs. Shenzhen Zhang, a PhD candidate in the Institute of Oceanology at the Chinese Academy of Sciences, is on a one-year visiting scholar appointment at UGA to work with Jaeger. So Shenzhen comes, she's a doctoral student. Been on ships before and done her own sampling before, so I'm excited for her though to do this on the Georgia coast because that's kind of fun, right? Yeah. Compare systems. Yeah. She has so conducted research using the methods of Jaeger's team in the Amazon River estuary to explore the main sources of organic matter in the Yangtze estuary. The Amazon is at tropical latitudes, whereas the Yangtze is more temperate. So it occurred to Jaeger that Zhang could do some comparative measurements in Georgia estuaries to aid her work in the Yangtze. She's also going to measure nutrients, nitrogen and phosphorus, silicate, I think, <clears throat> that tells us what's the status of the fertilizer in the ocean. And she's going to measure chlorophyll, which gives us an idea of how much algae there is in the ocean. And if you have all of these measurements together, you can kind of do a budget for what's happening out here biologically. So she's looking for human impacts, so things like extra fertilizer coming off of the rivers or extra 
organic matter coming from our sewage, right? We dump our sewage into the rivers and the sewage comes offshore and brings that organic matter with it. And, and what it might be doing is triggering extra respiration. So we can look at the nutrients and the chlorophyll to decide how much uh, algae, how much phytoplankton there is being produced. And then we also have the organic measurements. So if there's extra organic matter that's here that really shouldn't be here because of the phytoplankton, she'll be able to make that budget and see, oh, okay, well, there's way more organic matter here than the water column nutrients suggest that there should be. Right. So she's looking at all the inputs to the Georgia shelf from the rivers, from the sediments, from the open ocean, trying to balance the budget. And as Jaeger explains, there's an important connection between these inputs and estuary-based sources of high acidity. In order to have a healthy human aquaculture or even um, a, you know marine seafood industry, you have to have a healthy ocean. And if you are poisoning your ocean, whether it's with toxic compounds or too much nutrient or too much CO2, all of those things add up to make it harder for the fish that you want to harvest in your fishery, whether it's fish or shellfish. I mean, the shellfish are equally struggling. And what's happening in what I understand, and one of the things Shan Shan and, and the other students are working on is the there's two kinds of ocean acidification going on in Georgia. One is the extra CO2 that's in the atmosphere equilibrating into the ocean and making the pH lower. That's the ocean acidification that most people around the world are talking about. Too much CO2 going into the ocean and then making everything more acidic. In Georgia, the more important process is actually um, runoff and nutrients from the rivers causing blooms that then, because of the warm water, trigger more respiration, more breathing by the estuary. And now those breathers are making CO2. So the, the, the oxygen is lower and the CO2 is higher because of the extra respiration happening by the microorganisms primar primarily in the estuary. And so that's where Shan Shan's interest in sort of the, the whole what's coming down the estuary and, and mixing out in the ocean has an influence on the acidification story. The two are, are related. So again, looking at the corrosiveness of the ocean, how acidic the ocean is to the poor little oyster larvae that are trying to get around. The places where the oysters are living in the marshes, not on the beaches, right? The, the oysters are in the estuary. Um, those places are more acidic than the ocean itself, and the ocean is already acidic. The Redfield Ratio is a measurement of the carbon, nitrogen, and phosphorus in marine plankton and throughout the deep oceans. Around the world, the atomic ratio is consistent. This means scientists tracking how much nitrogen is added to the ocean or how much has been drawn down by the phytoplankton can use the ratio to estimate the carbon impact. And that has to do with the fact that we use carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus for certain molecules in our bodies, proteins and um, amino acids and lipids and stuff that we make our bodies out of have similar ratios of carbon to nitrogen. So like an amino acid, 
has a certain carbon to nitrogen ratio and you use amino acids to make protein and most marine animals are made out of protein. So it's not too surprising that the carbon to nitrogen and then phosphorus is used for things like ATP or lipids or other parts of the body and they're in a smaller concentration. So the carbon to nitrogen to phosphorus ratio is about 100 or 106 to 16 to 1. Everywhere you go, pretty much everywhere you go. Depending on the situation in the ocean, some animals and some plankton will shift away from the redfield ratio. But on the whole, it's not a bad guess of what the average looks like. So you can use it to measure one thing and extrapolate to the others. And then the Antarctic has all the nitrogen. It's, it's got more nitrogen than it knows what to do with, but it's pristine. So yeah. the whole system is, is, instead of waiting for more nitrogen to be added, it needs the iron, and the iron's coming out of the meltwater. So that's an interesting, you know, kind of a, an extreme over here. More nitrogen, but still can't grow. Yeah. And then the Arctic is very nitrogen limited, has hardly any nitrogen in it. So how do the impacts, how do the climate change impacts affect that system? Yeah. It's different from how the climate change impacts the Antarctic. It's different from how the climate change affects the nitrogen cycle in the Amazon. So it's just sort of a continuum of impact. The Climate impacts are similar everywhere, but the systems are responding differently because of where they're at. So in Greenland, we're looking at when the glaciers melt, when the ice sheet melts, dumps a whole lot of fresh water into the coastal zone of Greenland, which will have an impact on the carbonate system as well. Um, it also has an impact on the physics of the ocean because the fresh water floats on the surface. Oh yeah. And as we get closer to shore, you'll start to see more fresh water near the surface from the rivers. And when that happens, that makes a mixed layer. So you talked about the mixed layer. So fresh water makes a shallower mixed layer, which can be beneficial because it keeps the phytoplankton closer to the light. The glaciers will help the phytoplankton in some ways. So it could because they'll grow more quickly. Right. But then we could have more blooms. Right, and in Greenland that's not really a problem because right. there's not enough blooms up there. Right. But down here it might be a problem if we had more blooms from the rivers. Yeah. Two UGA undergraduates working with Jaeger, Severin Brown and Linton Hopkins, collected water samples along the coast from Beaufort, South Carolina to Savannah, sampling oceanside and marshside water to compare CO2 burdens between the two. Salinity is one of the major variables for the ocean. Especially when you're in a coastal zone, the salinity tells you how much river water you have being added and how much versus how much ocean water, right? So you said you were getting salinities of 20? Yeah, I believe so on the estuary sides, I okay, guess. Okay, so that what's the sense? salinity out here where we are? Right 32? 36? Pardon? 1,000? 36? Yeah. So that's pretty salty. That's Most of the open ocean is about 36. Okay. Uh-huh. So if you have 36 and you're measuring 20, so less salty. Can you guess how much river water you have added to your sample? A little bit less than half, I guess. Yeah. So you've got half river water in that sample. Yeah. And so rivers have lots of stuff in them, but they don't have much carbonate system. So they'll have a very small alkalinity compared to the ocean. So that will affect your measurement a lot. Yeah. Because you've got river water mixing with ocean water. Almost 50-50. Yeah. If you have a salinity of 20, that means about 
river versus ocean. So yeah. that's going to affect the buffering capacity of your samples, and that affects the oysters a lot. Because there's no carbonate in that river water, so you've cut their carbonate in half. Yeah. So they don't have any to make their shells. <laughs> so one of the, uh, the acidifying impacts is this fresh water coming from the land, mixing into the ocean. And if we have more fresh water than we used to have, because we have more floods, then that's going to take the alkalinity down lower and impact the critters. If we have a drought, it goes the other way, right? Right. So places like the Arctic, which are very becoming more fresh because of the melting ice, their alkalinity is also dropping. So they're one of the hot spots for ocean acidification due to the lower salinity. Oyster larvae require the presence of carbonate in the water in order to build their hard protective shell. And if there isn't enough carbonate for it to do that, it looks pathetic and it can't grow properly. And this is not just oysters. Right. This is anything that makes a shell. Yeah. It's a complicated story, right? Yeah. Trying to, trying yeah. to figure out what a phytoplankton needs to grow and then how does it get there <laughs> through all the different inputs and outputs. <laughs> That's why it takes more than one of us to do it. It takes a whole team of people. Some of the really great developing technologies are the satellites. So to be able to see our little patch from the satellite helps us understand the whole globe, right? Because the, the satellite will measure everywhere. We can only be at one place at a time on a ship. So the satellite will, if we can ground truth the satellite by taking boats out like we are here, making measurements of the ocean as we do, and then link that to what we see on the satellite, then we can use the satellite data for the whole globe, every day, every place, mm. to then sort of assess what's happening on the planet. Because we can't put a ship everywhere. We'll always start with ship-based measurements, because you need them. Yeah. So we, we will always need ships. Yeah. Um, and we'll always need crazy people like me that like to go out on ships. Because <laughs> 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 um, you're always sort of checking to see if your model or your remote sensing or whatever it is that you're trying to extrapolate up to the planet, yeah. the planet scale, yeah. if you're getting the right predictions. Yeah. So we need all of those things. Yeah. And, and we need people that do one to work together with the others to make sure we're all helping each other get the right answer. It's a complex story involving fundamental cycles and systems that scientists like Jaeger are working hard to understand and to share their best research methods with the next generation of scientists. We have, we have CO2 gas bubble concentrations going back a million years from ice cores. Yeah. And what we know is that they never get above about 285, 290. Even a million years ago, they were still, they went up and down a little bit with the ice ages between about 150 and 160 and 260. But they've never been this high ever in a million years. Which we're at like 400. We're at 400 now, right? We passed the 400 mark in like 2013, right? Right, so I think we're 407 or 408, 407, somewhere 408. there now. So the 2100 scenario you picked, is that the doubled CO2? That's a 500. That's 500, okay. So almost double. Yes. Do you think we're going to get there sooner? I'm going to say no because we're going to fix it before then. <laughs> Excellent answer. High five. <laughs> Good job.